Morning Glory and Evening Grace America. It's Hugh Hewitt. This is the last hour of the radio week, and therefore it's the hour of the Hillsdale Dialogue, which many of you, no matter where I go in this country, come up to tell me that you have come to treasure as I have. Thank you so much for doing that. This may be the hour that drives you crazy, though. It's the hour on the progressives. And to remind you, over the last six weeks, Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, and I have reviewed the rise of, of Abraham Lincoln, his political theory, his wartime generalship, the tragic assassination, and the era of Reconstruction. And briefly put, after that era of Reconstruction was the so-called Gilded Age, which we are gliding over the Gilded Age, to come to a period of time known as the Progressive Era. Uh, and I am not an expert on either the Reconstruction Era or the Progressive Era, except as so far as the Supreme Court uh, decisions go. And Dr. Arn himself said he would call for reinforcement. So joining the president of the college today is Dr. Ronald Pistrito, who is in fact an expert on the progressives. He is a uh, the graduate dean at uh, at Claremont, at uh, Hillsdale and the associate professor of politics at Hillsdale College, where he teaches political theory, American political thought and American politics. And he is the senior fellow of the college's Kirby Center. He gets occasionally to go down and visit at the uh, at the Criminal Law, Philosophy, and Public Policy Center at Bowling Green State University, and he's published so much on this, we are in good hands. Uh, Dr. Pastrito, welcome. Dr. Arn, welcome back. Uh, good, to, good to talk, to you. Good to be here, you. Now, I want to begin by noting that on your Vita that was sent to me by uh, Mr. Vernon, there is a note that you are currently working on a scholarly article on Lincoln and the progressive movement. Given where we have been for the last seven hours of the Hillsdale Dialogues. That shocked me a little bit. I thought uh, Abraham Lincoln was in our rearview mirror, except in our hearts. What is that about, Dr. Pistrito, and how does Lincoln connect to the progressive movement? Well, you know, everybody wants to, everybody wants to claim Lincoln. Everybody wants a piece of Lincoln. Uh, this is true today, of course. Uh, you see many on the left who want to claim the legacy of Lincoln, uh, and it was true on the left a hundred years ago. Uh, and you know, some of our most prominent national progressives, uh, Woodrow Wilson, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, justified a lot of their progressivism uh, on the basis of, of Lincoln and Lincoln's statesmanship, a profoundly uh, erroneous understanding of Lincoln and Lincoln's statesmanship. Um, but uh, it was just as popular on the left uh, during, during the progressive era as, as it is today. Oh, I'm and relieved. So, I thought you were making a Kim Philby-like argument that Lincoln was one of them and we didn't know it. Oh, no, 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 not at all. In, uh, uh, in fact, I'm trying to do some justice to, to Lincoln uh, from the, the, bad, uh, <laughs> the bad effect on his name uh, because of the progressive claims on him. Oh, then, then, I will, uh, then I'll retreat from my, my worry and, and go back to the beginning. Dr. Arn, when, when last we talked, we had... Uh, we had seen Reconstruction abandoned in the aftermath of the 1876 election, and we entered this age of laissez-faire and, and, and let the good times roll and growth and recession and growth and recession. Here we are at the progressive era. Are you surprised that in recent years, people as diverse as Jonah Goldberg with liberal fascism and the wonderful Charles Kessler with his book, and everybody in between has been writing about the progressive era? Hillsdale College, in fact, did an entire online course on the progressives. We did. Well, first of all, you'll find in John Goldberg's book um, lots of quotes of books by R.J. Pastrito. And, uh, of course, R.J. Pastrito was a student of Charles Kessler, so these connections are not so amazing as you'd think. But also the, it, it commands attention for two reasons, I think. One is it's a great movement of thought, that is to say great in the sense of large. Uh, in the 19th century, 
an idea was born that has become the commanding idea. And then the second thing is it's a great movement of politics and it has restructured and redirected the American government to a very considerable extent. So it's a topic and uh, you have to talk about it. And Dr. Pastrito, I spent most of last week uh, preparing for an all-day Monday uh, of this week interviewing Richard Norton Smith about his massive and wonderful biography of Nelson Rockefeller. And when Nelson Rockefeller arrived in the, the governor's mansion in Albany in 1958, he was very much the end stage of progressivism. At all uh, practicality and trying to make uh, bring all the scientific geniuses together and no ideology was that foreseeable when the movement got underway? Uh, well, um, you have to uh, repeat your question there for a second. You that was what foreseeable? You know, a, a Rockefeller like approach to every problem. Yeah. Let's just get the experts together and yeah. fix it. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, very, uh, very much a part of of uh, progressivism. I mean, what p- part of? I like to talk about the connections between. You know, progressive thought and the rise of modern bureaucracy, and, and it's one of the reasons why I argue that the discussions like this about progressivism are still so relevant today, is because you know we're, we're governed, we're governed so much by uh, by regulation, and this uh, sort of attitude and the culture of it uh, is is very much uh, a part of the the original idea of the progressive movement. The idea, what I like to, it's it's the authority of science. It's you're talking about people. When they were young, who came in, came up in the second half of the 19th century, and you know wanted to make their mark, and were looking for some opportunity. Where's where's the place, and what's the way in which me and educated people like me can make our mark on our country? And politics at that time was thought to be quite low and corrupt, and there's a certain historical context for that, obviously to some degree. Do we do we uh, credit Leon Zoglaz? I think that's how you say his name. The man who shot William McKinley. As the man who unleashed progressivism upon the country, I, I certainly don't. No, I, I mean, I, I, progressivism is it, it's it's unleashed on the country long long before that, uh, and it's unleashed through the universities. I mean, this is oh, why. Interesting. No, this is why we many of us are so passionate about what we do as teachers because you know, when when. <laughs> Talk about how he got away from constitutional thinking in in twentieth and twentieth century America, modern America. It's a long project. Uh, it was dec- decades and decades in the making, and it start you start at the top, and that's what Aristotle says. You know, in any regime, you start at, you start at the ideas at the top, and they filter down. And so, the progressivism came in through the universities, uh, starting in, back into the middle of, of the nineteenth century. Some would argue even earlier. Who's the first progressive? <laughs> Well, uh, the first progressive politician, probably on a national scale, somebody like Woodrow Wilson, um, and he's an intellectual uh, long before he's he's a politician. Um, but you know, you have to look at, for example, uh, the influence of places like Johns Hopkins University. Yep, uh, I thought you'd go there. Yep, founded in the 1870s on the German model, and and uh, educated not just Wilson but John Dewey, the most prominent public philosopher uh, in the first half of the 20th century, uh, Frederick Jackson Turner, uh, just a host of host of progressives. Would you came, pause came for a moment, uh, Dr. Pastrano, tell people sure. what the German model is. Uh, sure, just for a moment. I'll, I'll, uh, tell, you about, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you about the German model. Uh, no, the, the idea, you know, G- German political philosophy in the 19th century, the idea that, that, that uh, everything is contingent on, on, on history. So you could talk about questions of 
good government or justice or truth, and you couldn't really speak about those things in in absolute terms or in universal terms. Everything would be contingent, right? The uh, you know justice means one thing in one age and another in another, and so um, you know the the, the German uh, uh, political philosophers brought the study brought history to to the to, to talks about uh, two discussions of justice. So and, let, let me add. Okay. Yeah. So history is not anymore a record of the past, which uh, it, especially at key moments shows all the human potentialities. So you can study the Greeks or the Romans or the British or the great things or the Chinese, and you can see at the peak what human beings are capable of doing. Now history is a formative experience. It, it has an effect on people and shapes them, an effect on nature too. And so now history is a record of making, and as, as the making goes on, what comes later is not, as, uh, is not the same as what went before. And so uh, this gets going in the universities in the United States at Johns Hopkins, founded in 17, 1876. I know that because it was on my birthday, February the 22nd. And, uh, and off it went. Um, and as I recall, I read a history of it once, specifically a religious, almost militantly so, uh, Dr. Pastrito. Yeah, and, and uh, what's going on at Hopkins, I mean, Hopkins is the most obvious representative of the sort of transference of the German way of thinking into the United States, but it's not the only uh, instance of it. I mean, at, at this time, you... You have uh, not just at Hopkins, but in, in the major universities, you have all these orthodox universities with orthodox boards of trustees, but they think the thing that they need to do to, to be trendy, to be elite, is to hire PhDs from Europe and especially from Germany. And so a lot of the universities, uh, you know, are, are, are affected. You know, you, there's such a great difference if you look at, say, 1860 versus 1900 in the American college or university. They're, they're just radically different. Uh, and so by the time you get to the turn of the 20th century, this way of thinking is in, I like to say, it's in the air and the water. When we come back, we'll talk about what that exactly was that was going into the air and the water of American life and why Wilson is the first progressive, not TR. There'll be an argument there. And when we get back, a lot more on this week's Hillsdale Dialogue. All the Hillsdale Dialogues are available at hughforhillsdale.com. Or at hillsdale.edu, where you should repair to immediately. It is the Hugh Hewitt Show. 21 minutes after the hour, America. It's the hour of the Hillsdale Dialogue, where for an hour each week we go back into the history of ideas and things that matter. And this hour, we're talking about the progressive era in American history, which begins uh, late in the, 19, in the 18th century and early in the 19th century and spreads out uh, like kudzu throughout the rest of American history. With Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, and Dr. Ronald Pistrito, uh, his uh, his colleague there is graduate dean and also senior fellow at the Kirby Center for Constitutional Studies and Citizenship in Washington D.C. Dr. Arn, a moment on John Dewey. He's come up a few times in our conversations and a few asides. Why is he such a critical fixture, uh, fixture, uh, fixture in American conversations about what went wrong? Well, he had a long academic career. Uh, at Columbia, mostly he um, he's what uh, R.J. Professor Pastrito called him. He was a public intellectual. He was connected in politics, and uh, these guys were very much like that because their ideas drove them to think that this process of history that shapes everything 
can be understood, in fact, can only be understood scientifically. You have to understand the process of history. And if you understand it, then you could affect it, cooperate with it, maybe change it. And so they have a, they have a motive that's different from the motive of the founders. The founders wanted to learn the lessons of history and arrange the society so that it accord, accorded with the best things that you could find in history, the best principles and the best practices. What these guys think is there's a process going on, and the process gives us an opportunity for a more radical kind of improvement. And that means that we have to be scientists as we uh, 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 approach a discipline that they pretty much invented, public administration. And so Dewey is a man, like most of these guys, who's an academic guy who has a lot to say about what we ought to do. Uh, my favorite thing written by him, which because it's the most horrific, is the General Report of 1916. Sometimes I think it's 1906. I bet R.J. knows because he knows most about this. And, and what it is is the founding document for the Teachers' Union for Colleges. Oh, my. And he explains the new basis of the university, and he divides things that used to be together. He thought the university's purposes were teaching and research, which in the classical university are the same thing. You learn together. That's what universities do. But then he added a third, contributing to the social evolution of the society. And then he, and so that's a new task, right? And if you think about that for a minute, that's an exercise in power. You're going to influence things now, not just understand, you're going to make. And then religion comes up in the document three times, uh, uh, associated each time with the word propaganda. Huh. Uh, uh, universities that have religious commitments, and by the way, there were hardly any old universities in history since the first ones in the 13th century, that didn't begin with Christian, uh, with Christian specifically, or with religious purposes, but now those they can continue, he says, but they are obliged, in honesty, to identify themselves as propaganda institutions. Wow! And, and Dr. Pastrito, anything to add to this as to Dewey? That, those are some radical concepts right there, and major breaks. But at the same time, I like to point out we spent hours on Marx and Engels earlier in this series. They were they were revolutionaries. Was was Dewey a revolutionary, or was he merely, did he consider himself a scientist? Dewey, he didn't want to present himself as a revolutionary. The, the argument that he made, he made is you know, he, that his version of liberalism, that progressive liberalism, modern liberalism, was a natural outgrowth, uh, that it was just, um, you know, hi history was bringing about, you know, kind of positive change to liberalism. And so he wanted to make an argument of continuity. Uh, one of the ways he did that, you the sort of one point I was going to add is, and this is something that you see uh, talked about a lot in politics today. He says, you know, that old understanding of liberty, the founders' understanding, is a is a negative understanding, right? It's about what your your what your rights are, what what government can't do to you, uh, and so it's a it's a right you have in in principle, but the problem is, you know, if you're in a material sense, if you're poor. If you're, if you don't have any any money, if you don't have any food, if you're, uh, then you really can't enjoy liberty. And so, you know, Dewey talks about the difference between negative liberty and positive liberty. He talks about, you know, effective liberty. Uh, and uh, this is very influential. For example, if you look at FDR's, uh, you know, the 1944 annual message where he talks about the Second Bill of Rights. You know, you got all these negative rights in the original Bill of Rights. 
And then there's all these other rights that we need to have, right to food, right to a job, right to shelter, right to all of this. Uh, and you need the second to enjoy the first. And so for Dewey, you know, that's an, just an outgrowth out of the old liberalism. And so now when Dewey, as you said, ideas and Aristotle said, ideas begin at the top and they, they move their way down through the universities. And Dewey is the representative of that movement, which is much broader than Dewey. And then they move into politics. And you cited Wilson as the first sort of the prime mover of that, both as governor of New Jersey, obviously, and then as president. Before that, though, Doris Kearns Goodwin wrote a book earlier this year, The Bully Pulpit, in which she talked about the muckrakers and about TR and about Taft and about the whole undoing of TR and his his love of, of attacking things big and his pseudo-progressivism. Are you rejecting that, uh, Dr. Pastrito? Was no. TR not a progressive? Oh, but far from it. In fact, I've... I've published uh, nationally on, uh, you know, on the question of TR's progressivism and, and uh, uh, you know, identifying him as a, as a very fervent progressive. Both TR and Wilson are progressives going back into the 19th century. Um, the, I guess I would say the, the reason Wilson came to mind, uh, not only is someone I figure I know better, which may have something to do with it, but uh, when TR was president, you know, the, there's, there's a I don't want to say a transformation, but there, there's certainly a much harder edge to his progressivism that takes place after his presidency. He, le- he leaves office. He goes on safari. Uh, on his way back, he, he reads Herbert Crowley's Promise of American Life, which ah. had just come out. Yeah. Uh, Crowley, you know, another very prominent progressive intellectual, probably the most important one we haven't mentioned yet. Uh, one of the founders of the New Republic, the founding editor of the New Republic. We have to mention that, Lipman as well, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, that's very good. So... You know, TR becomes in a way sort of trans. I don't say transformed because he's. I think he's a progressive all along. But but you know, his progressivism takes on a sharper edge. He returns. He becomes a critic of Taft. Um, and and this is when you get the speeches like the New Nationalism and these sort of much more radical uh, accounts of American progressivism from TR is really uh, almost as a as a critic of Wilson. They see Wilson as a, as a kind of conservative, Crowley and TR do. And so, Larry Arn, is that where the Republican Party gets its occasional outbursts of populist and progressive rhetoric because of that TR branch of the party? Well, it was deeper than, wider and deeper than him. Um, you know, it, it, th- these were the ideas, right? And they had a basis in popular sentiment, too. Uh, one of the expressions of it was uh, trust busting and uh, these big corporations, you know, the politics of the day are recognizable in the politics of the time of TR and later and for a long time. And you get a, a what I regard as a profound re- and beautiful reaction against that and a return to the ideas of the founding in uh, Calvin Coolidge. But it does not last. Its roots are not deep enough. And we'll tell you what happens next. Don't go anywhere, America. You're listening to The Hugh Hewitt Show. 34 minutes after the hour, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue this week on American Progressivism 1.0 with Dr. Larry Arn, the president of Hillsdale College, and Dr. R.J. Pastrito, who is the graduate dean and associate professor of politics at Hillsdale College. He's also the senior fellow at the college's Kirby Center for Constitutional studies and citizenship in Washington, D.C. No one has become more controversial in the last 10 years, I'm going to say, Dr. Pastrito, among conservatives than Woodrow Wilson. I put a lot of this down to Jonah Goldberg and Charles Kessler, as I mentioned earlier. People might have had a a different view of Wilson, tragic or well-intentioned or whatever, but now they've come actually 
on our side of the political aisle to view him as rather sinister. Is that deserved? Uh, I mean, I think I think uh, partly deserved. I don't know if he was necessarily a sinister man person personally, uh, but he um, I think people have come to understand Wilson's pivotal role in the, in the transformation of the American regime. You know, when I when I started my scholarship, I my scholarship was on the founding and I became interested in, you know, what happened to the founding and the development of our country. And that's why I got interested in the progressives. And in fact, Charles Kessler, who was a teacher of mine, whom you mentioned, uh, put me onto Wilson for that reason. And I, you know, I studied him a lot, learned a lot about him. Uh, and you know, have argued in recent years, uh, long, long before it became popular to talk about Wilson, by the way, among conservatives, uh, that, that he was, you know, this, this very important uh, figure. I do think, um, I think TR is a more, the, the case for TR's progressivism is a more controversial case. I run into a lot of conservatives who have a, who have admiration for TR. And of course, that's understandable, right? I mean, he's a, he's a much more sort of manly, attractive, uh, you know, uh, uh, figure than, bully. than Wilson. Bully, yeah. bully, bully. And yeah, the uh, guy the gets shot. Fleet. Yes. He gets shot giving a speech, uh, you know, in 1912 on the, and, and, you know, that's at the beginning of the speech and he finishes the speech and it's some 90 minutes long or whatever. It's, that account's probably apocryphal to a certain extent. But, um, you know, Wilson, that Wilson, you'd never mistake that person for Wilson. Um, and, and so for a lot of conservatives, what they, they can't get past that. Uh, but if we, we conservatives think the problem in our time is the out-of-control government that we have, the, the, the idea that government knows no constitutional bounds, uh, then you really can't, you can't find someone who is a bigger advocate of unlimited government than, than Teddy Roosevelt. And you can also find very few people who speak <clears throat> as bluntly as Woodrow Wilson about the uh, the ability to set aside the uh, uncomfortable parts of the Constitution that limit his authority, Larry Arn. He was very glib when it came to saying he could do what he wanted done. Oh, yeah. And uh, that's and see, constitutionalism, which Madison describes in, in the case of the American Constitution to be a reflection of the order of nature, is supposed to provide a fixity of form and through this fixity of form that we proceed in certain ways when we do things, that is to add deliberate deliberation and protection to the process. It's not, by the way, meant to stifle the government. There are powerful ways that it's meant to liberate the government, make it powerful. They, they, they were building a more powerful government when they wrote the Constitution. What these guys think is you just have to adjust all that all the time because facts are coming up. Our uh, professor, Pastrito, has written what I think is a really, he's written a lot that I think is great, but he's written a really great essay on the subject of separation of powers, which is, by the way, the key that gives the structure to the Constitution, and and how lightly they took it and how contemptuous the uh, leading progressives were of the very idea of it. And, of course, Wilson himself was a big critic of that. Well, if you if you took them all and you distilled them down, Dewey and Lippmann and Crowley and T.R. and Wilson, and eventually F.D.R., who overwhelms your favorite Coolidge, Larry? Um, what is it that they all believe? What What is? How would you summarize it? I, I always put it to my law students: You've got to be able to make an argument that a seventh grader understands. So, so, uh, Doctor Pastrita, what is it that brings them all together and binds them together under that title, progressive? 
Ooh, I thought I was going to get the seventh grade question. <laughs> <laughs> you can have the fourth grade question. After, after I don't understand Pastrito's answer to the seventh grade, then I'm going to go to you. <laughs> well, I'm going to let you say that, you and my boss. <laughs> so, uh, look, what I always say, you know, what, what, progressivism is an argument to get, o- get over the founding, get over the Constitution, oh. get, get, get beyond it. Uh, and... The, the amazing, you know, the, the tie in, in a lot of the things that the progressives you just named, the things that they write and say, you go back and re, you know, re, read that stuff. Uh, so many of those things will begin with a, a, a they'll bring up the, the political theory, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and they need to discredit it before they can move, move on. And that's something that, that's common to, to most of them. That is, hold on to that. We're going to come right back. An argument to get over the founding. How well put. I'll be right back with uh, Dr. Pastrito, Dr. Arn from Hillsdale College on the Hillsdale Dialogue. For all of the Hillsdale Dialogue, go to hughforhillsdale.com or to hillsdale.edu. 44 minutes after the hour, America. It's the last Hillsdale Dialogue of the year, though, of course, Dr. Arn will be back on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day for our annual march through the history of ideas that so many of you do love. And I am finishing on a low note because I'm finishing on the high note of progressivism's era. Uh, with Dr. Arn and Dr. R.J. Pastrito talking today about uh, progressivism in America and its launch, all of the Hillsdale Dialogues, every single one, back for two years to Homer, are available at hugh4hillsdale.com or, or via hillsdale.edu. Dr. Arn, Dr. Pastrito was saying as we went to break that progressivism always is an argument to get over the founding. Now, my question becomes, why would people want to get over the founding? Now, I I guess the answer is in the form of Jane Hull or others who hate the squalor and the suffering of industrialization. But you tell me, why do they want to get over the founding? Okay, now the fourth grade. Yep. So the point is, it, uh, the classics teach us that people do things for some good. They want, they see a good. And their argument really, their, especially their political argument, goes like this. Look at the world. The powers of man are growing all the time. We can do so much more than we used to be able to do. We have so much more wealth than we used to be able to do. And that, by the way, is a continuity in the human story. We are the tool-making people, the contrivers. We can overcome nature. And so now we've reached the stage where we should be more systematic about it because great gains can be had. And it's great that the American Revolution happened. It prepares the way for us, for the next thing. But also it can be in the way. And all these obstacles that it puts up, you have to be impatient with those because much better things are possible now. And I will add, and that's their argument. And then I will just add to that, that if it's true that human nature is the overcomer of all nature, then what is the standard that you would measure better and worse by. That, How do you know you're making it better? That's what I, I said. Much better things can be accomplished, but if they have jettisoned religion, then why do they have, what basis do they have, you know, like Catholic social teaching you could have held on to and, and argued for the, the halt, the blind, and the lame or something like that, but they're all atheists or agnostic, Dr. Pastrita. What is it that they're, they want to make better? Well, we have, to be, we have to be careful about that because they're... Um, uh, we conservatives often assume that that, that progressives were athe- were atheists. Many were, uh, but there's a there's a as as big a branch of progressivism that is profoundly intertwined with religious faith. Well, see that would, they I would understand much more easily than those who were not. Right? Yes, 
Yeah, no, that, that no, that that's a good point. I mean, for social gospel, for example, exactly, uh, it's a kind of religious arm of progressivism and sees God essentially in history manifesting itself ultimately in the state. And that they would want to sweep away the founding if they really thought that they could do more good for the lost, the least, and the and the blind, the halt, and well, the lame. Here, here's the view: the view of nature in the founding is that it's that it's fallen. That it's uh, that 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 human nature's fallen, and then per- perfection is not possible in this life, and so human government uh, has has to be limited. The and there's there's a you know, progressive uh, the progressive account, both theological and philosophic, is man can, man can be perfected, uh, and so there can be the perfection of human nature in this life, and therefore human works can be perfect, and we can do more with the state. Uh, that's that's the big conflict here. And so, Doctor Arndt, has that crashed and broken now? I mean, beyond repair. FDR had had his way of of being wily about it, but now we've been through a couple of iterations of it, and and we are in the end stage of progressivism with President Obama, aren't we? Well, that's the sixty four thousand dollar question, and that depends on the future, right? There's a great controversy about it now. As progressivism has installed itself in the government, the government has become less trusted and less popular very steadily, and that's now reached a a pitch. You know, there's an intensity about it, and that wasn't true of the government, let's say, in 1920 or in 1955 in the way that it is now, and there's some polling about that at least since the Second World War. But on the other hand, the government also grows steadily more powerful. And so the question before the House, in my opinion, is are we going to have a government built on principles and of, an, of such a scale and such a set of powers and operating in such a way that it doesn't matter so much what we think anymore? And that seems to me the question before the House these days. And Dr. Pastrito, my question to you is would the progressives of the, of the early 20th century recognize the progressivism of 100 years later and applaud it? Uh, they would differ with uh, a, a lot of the specifics. I mean, the, you know, the, the liberalism of the 60s and post-60s, uh, you know, would, would in many respects be unrecognizable uh, to the early progressives. On the other hand, uh, it, it comes out of progressivism because progressivism, original progressivism, sets in motion the contempt for the Constitution, the contempt for, for limits, the contempt for nature, uh, you know, all, all of that uh, is utterly consistent with with modern iterations of progressivism. And so, do you think it's end stage? Is it, or or is there even more government to be had in America? Uh, I'm the worst predictor in the world. This is why I'm a college professor. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I really, you know, what gets me out of bed in the morning is is uh, is is the hope for the future. But I I fear greatly where we are. Uh, it, wouldn't the true scientist, Larry? And I'll close this week on this and this year on this. Wouldn't the true scientists, if there were true scientists and progressives, assess the last century and say failure, start over? No, the, the dynamic in it prevents that kind of thing, right? Because there's enormous scientific progress all the time and gaining speed, it looks to me like. And that that gives an argument for this idea that we can just organize everything. And then, you know, people have a stake in it. And remember about the future. Uh, Churchill always said the future, though imminent, is obscure. And it's the progressives who think they can predict the future. What, what, What I think and what 
I'll speak for him, Professor Pastrido thinks, and what you, Hugh Hewitt, think is you think that what, what the, the future, it depends on choices we make, right? And how good are we? How lucky are we? That matters. How much does providence smile on us? How virtuous we are. That's right. That's, that's, that's good, right? And, and that, those are unanswered questions, right? I mean, for example, if you go back to 1940 in the month of May, Britain is beat and they're going to get out of the war. But then somebody intervened, and they didn't. <laughs> well, that is a great way to end the year. Uh, Dr. Larry on President of Hillsdale College, Dr. R.J. Pastrito, who is the graduate dean there, thank you both very, very much. I think we'll be returning to this subject in the new year. Don't go anywhere, America. I'll wrap up today's Hugh Hewitt Show.